Lord, as, as we read this passage, as we hear it read, there's some difficult things here, difficult to hear, difficult to understand. And so we are utterly dependent upon you because by your Holy Spirit you wrote this and you preserved it for us. And so now will you teach us? Will you help us truly to to sit it at your feet, to listen with, with ears desiring faith. We look to you for this. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, congratulations, you are 36. I know what you're thinking. Some of you are saying, oh, I wish I was still 36. <laughs> Some of you are saying, don't rush me. That, that's so old. And some of you are probably thinking, I wish I could remember when I was 36. <laughs> well, in any case, for our church, it's, it's good to, to celebrate another year of God's faithfulness, and he has been so faithful. But, you know, you do a little perspective in terms of ages of churches, and all you've got to do is, is go to several of our mission focus areas, England or Bulgaria or Ukraine, and you are going to see churches that are hundreds of years old. And when I do that, it often brings a sadness because in each of those places, while the buildings still stand and while there may be uh, on a, a normal Sunday a handful, literally a handful of people there, they are not what they were. And that's why we are there. And that's why we have our partners there to build and to rebuild those churches that once had a great heritage. We're in a difficult time in our own country, but I hope that as we go through this passage today, you will see, and this is not to minimize difficulties that we may face, but you will see that, that every generation has said, this is the worst time. It's awful now. People back then don't know what, what we're having to face. And we are going to see a, a church 
that was in crisis. Now, several years ago, three years ago on Anniversary Sunday, um, we began a series. It's kind of strange to say a series because we only do it once a year on our Anniversary Sunday. But it's a series on the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And so we looked at uh, Ephesus and then Smyrna, and this year is Pergamum. And I would suspect that if we were doing a Bible quiz and, and you hadn't been prepped for this, and I said, what do you know about Pergamum? I doubt that many of us uh, would have passed that quiz in terms of, I, I don't know much about Pergamum or the church there. And so it's the reason I wanted to do that series is, is because it's my contention that with those seven churches, that the messages that are pertinent to each one of those churches not only applied to them at that time when it was given, but that all of the things that those churches were facing and the warnings that they need, the encouragement that they received, all of those things are pertinent to every church of every generation, and that's why it was preserved for us. So let's take a look at, uh, at what we see here. First of all, uh, they are commended by the Lord. Verse 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now, let's begin by seeing what do we know? What do we know about uh, Pergamum? Well, it was a city of about 190,000. That was a, a, a big city at that time. It was a capital city. Uh, and particularly of, of that part of uh, the, the Roman Empire, um, a capital of that province of Asia. But it was most known as a center for religion. Now, this was not a good thing, at least talking from uh, a Christian perspective. There were at least four major pagan cults that uh, had their roots there in Pergamum. It was an evil place. Towering over the, the city was a, a sacred mountain, but on that mountain was temple after temple to pagan gods. There was one particularly uh, prominent one uh, that was to Zeus. It was some 800 feet above the city. That's way up there. But it was where everyone could see it. And there was evidently a huge temple to Zeus. Some think that that's uh, what was being referred to where Satan dwells that it actually looked like it could be a, a throne that was out over 
the city and that that might be what was being referred to here. There was a, a, a temple of Asclepius, the son of Apollos, and he was thought to be the first uh, physician. Doctors are going to know this. I, I, I guess they, they teach this, but uh, uh, Asclepius, uh, his symbol was the snake, and when you see the, the staff with the snake around it representing medicine, that's where that came from. But the temple to Asclepius was one where people would come from all over hoping to be healed. But the temple floor, picture this, the temple floor was full of serpents and snakes going around. Ours isn't. You don't have to lift your feet. That's it. <laughs> but can you imagine what an awful place that would be. They felt that by touching a serpent, they could be healed. You can see how evil of a place this was. But the major cult, even with those prominent ones, the major cult was the imperial cult of Caesar. The government is God. To live in Pergamum was literally to live in the shadow of pagan worship. Now, notice, however, how it goes on. That's, that's the city. But he says this, with all this going on around you, yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So here uh, in Pergamum, in the midst of that darkness, were Christians. And, and they are actually being commended. You, you held fast and things got so bad that, that at least one who was standing for the faith was martyred for that faith, Antipas. And they're commended for that. He talks about where Satan dwells. But he's saying, I know your situation. I get it. I know what you are facing. So he, he doesn't stop there, though, because there are some concerns for the church. The overall concern seems to be that even though they truly believed and, and, and also seemed to have theological convictions, obviously, if at least one had died for the faith, that somehow... They had some kind of fellowship with some of these false prophets. Here's, here's what's said to them. Verse 14. But, 
I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Okay, so the first one mentioned is the teaching of Balaam. That goes all the way back to the book of Numbers again. That's, that's why this, this sounds confusing when we first uh, read through this. Balaam uh, uh, told the Moabite women that they should seduce the men of Israel, the faithful ones, uh, by inviting them to idolatrous feasts. Now, these idolatrous feasts, it wasn't just that they were eating food offered to idols and things like that, but the, the feasts, the eating and drinking, would inevitably lead to all kinds of sexual immorality. So that's how they were taken in. And he says, that's basically happening among you. You, you Christians, you Christians who had one from among you die for the faith? What is this? So he mentions that, and then he says, verse 13, 15 rather, so also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now the Nicolaitans were, they were similar in a way, but they implied that the freedom in Christ meant license to sin. You get it? What do you mean freedom in Christ means license to sin? Well, the cults in that day would say things like this. Look, it's all about the spirit. Our bodies don't really matter. That's a heresy, by the way. That's not at all Christian. But they would say our bodies don't really matter. So you can do whatever you want with your body. It doesn't matter in terms of eternity. And after all, we teach grace and forgiveness. You'll be forgiven. So do you see how some would get uh, taken right into that? And they would hear this from those that they trusted in terms of, of teaching, and they would say, well, you know what, that, that sounds good to me. I, I believe in grace. I believe in forgiveness. And so they, they twisted the gospel to that point. And so even though they weren't necessarily teaching that, evidently they were tolerating that kind of teaching, if not standing up against it or at least being silent about it. The compromise was both in the law and the gospel. They were living as if there were no law to restrain them. Now look, we, we don't teach and they don't, didn't teach if they were coming from a Christian perspective that, that you're saved by the law, but that for the believer, the law is a beautiful gift for us to, 
to know how it will be best for us if we live according to the law after we come to Christ. That's how those fit together. But their compromise would be as if there is no law, all that matters is, is, is grace and forgiveness. And they fell into immorality because of that. They would not talk about living a life of holiness out of gratitude for what Christ has done for us. And by the way, that's incredibly up to, up to date. There are those that would teach, not calling it the Nicolaitans or Balaam or Balak or any of that, uh, certainly not calling it that, but saying, we're not going to talk about uh, holiness here because if you love God, you'll do the right thing. Well, yeah, you will. But God, nonetheless, reminds us what the right thing is when he gives us his precious word. So he, he gives the choice then, verse 16, of either uh, Condemnation or consolation is what I put here. 16, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. So step one is, is repent. If you've fallen into that, church of Pergamum, then you start with repentance. And by the way, that's always the message for the church. The church and true believers should live lives of repentance because we will sin. Somebody told me this morning, I'll not tell you who, wild horses could not drag it out of me who it was, but somebody was telling me about some, something that had happened on the way to church that had frustrated them to the point that, that, that they were saying and thinking things about the person in front of them. <laughs> Some of you are laughing nervously. <laughs> Some of you think your spouse told on you, don't you? That's the only reason I'm sharing it, because... Because that's our life, and I, I admired uh, this one for, for telling me that. And how often, even on the way to worship, how often does Satan tempt us to some kind of discouragement or, or some sin before us? And yet... That's the beauty of the gospel. So it says in, um, in verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. Strange way to put it. What, what's the hidden manna now? This, that sounds cultish. Well, it's not that big of a mystery. In the Old Testament, God fed his people with manna. Manna was a type 
of, of bread that they were being given in the wilderness so that they wouldn't starve. And uh, they were being given plenty of it. So much so that, that they uh, preserved some in the Ark of the Covenant, which was later deposited in the temple in, in Jerusalem. But what is the manna? Well, it was a shadow of something that was to come. It was a foreshadow of Jesus. We know that because this is what he said in John 6, 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. This is all talking about manna. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, you know what it is. I am the bread. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That's Jesus saying, I fulfilled what was going on back there. And here in the book of Revelation, he says, look, I'm the answer. I am the focus here as well. You repent, and the focus of the church must be on Christ. That's what's offered to the church. It was Jesus promising himself to any who would repent. And then he gives another mysterious statement. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Oh, I banged my head against commentaries and you can find at least a dozen interpretations of that. And I didn't like any of them that much. <laughs> One of them is probably right. But here's what it's saying, even though we may not understand fully the uh, there's a lot of good explanations historically what the white stone might be and so on and some of the customs and so on. But, but here's the point of it, and this is where I settled when I couldn't figure out why they were using, why, why that was used. It's evident that he's referring to a new name given to them by Jesus. That here's your identity. Our identity is in Christ and that's the emphasis. That's the real us. Okay, remember, this is Pergamum. They're surrounded by, by all of this. And he sees fit to say, repent. To those who repent, Christ is what you will receive. But not only that, you will have a new identity. And it's not what they say you are. It's not what they think you are. It's not even what you think you are. It's what I say you are. You're a child of the living God. And that's the only way to survive with all of this. 
So what does this mean for St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church on our anniversary? Well, it starts with repentance. Therefore, repent. And we should make that our, uh, uh, what we say every anniversary and every Sunday, that's what we do. Therefore, genuine repentance. But let me give you some other principles. From this, I believe, we must reaffirm our commitment to the Scripture. These, by the way, these are the foundational principles of of our, certainly our denomination, but of St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church. I'm not sharing something new here. But we should reaffirm our commitment to the, the Word of God. Secondly, we must reaffirm our commitment to the pure, unadulterated gospel. Make sure that every time the gospel is shared from this pulpit, from our Sunday school and growth classes, from our, with our youth, with our children, with those in our community, that it is the pure gospel, never warped for our convenience, but always faithful to the Word of God. And then thirdly, thinking of the evil that was around in, in Pergamum and the kinds of things we face in our world, we must be immune to a world of political correctness when it conflicts with the Word and the Gospel. We must be immune to a world of political correctness when it conflicts with the Word and the Gospel. I will give you very quickly just two moral issues. And you... you probably could guess. These are not political issues. This is purely a position from the Word of God. One would be the life issues, abortion, infanticide, and, uh, genocide certainly, and euthanasia, all of those. And then the other would be the definition of marriage in our world. We say from the Word of God that life begins at conception. It is life with a soul. I cannot prove that in a lab. I can't prove it by looking at it. There's only one way we can prove that. Because the Creator said so. That's it. That's it. And we believe that, that life ends when, when God says it ends, not when we determine what's most, most convenient for us. That's it. Not because I like necessarily either of those. Now, now here's the problem. If you take that stand, it will not be popular around your water cooler it will not be popular in your, in your schools. In fact, it will be unpopular. And you will be told such things as, well, you don't care about the rights of, of women. And your tendency, my tendency, 
would be to say, well, you don't, you don't care about babies because you're murdering them. And that's not the right way. Because they do care about babies. They do. And we do care about women and their rights. So it's not about who loves babies more because you will never win that argument. It's got to come down to what we said first, and that is the Word of God and the gospel. There needs to be one reason why we take a stand for life, and it's not because we like that stand better or it's more convenient or anything else. There's only one reason, and that is because that's what God has told us, and we choose to believe the Word of God. And then on the other, in terms of marriage, the same thing. You will be told if you say marriage is between a man and a woman, you'll be told, oh, that's so outdated. You must hate people who identify as being, being gay. And we have to say no. There's only one reason. And you can even say, look, I, th this isn't my idea there's only one reason that I would define it that way, and that is because the Word of God has said it. That's, that's the, only, the only place we should go with that. Now, some would say, oh, come on, now tone it down. Everything was so nice until you started talking about those things. That's not the case. We're not going to be a better church if we tone it down. We must learn to be uncompromising when it comes to the Word of God and the gospel and hold to that even when it costs us popularity. William Dernis said this, sociologists have realized that the faster growing and more vigorous religious groups in America tend to define their views more precisely, exhibit a wholeheartedly a wholehearted commitment to their faith and express an irrepressible missionary zeal. In other words, Christianity will do best when it employs its contextual resources to clearly differentiate itself from other faiths, even as it makes use of current cultural resources to express, express its identity clearly. And all that's saying is, look, Say who you are and stick to it when it's on the Word of God. And that's all we have to stand on. My opinion is not, not worth more than anyone else out there, any of my neighbors, anyone who would want to argue with me. It's just not. But the Word of God is. Now, with that, we've got to always be careful. Because that can come across as proud and pompous. And that's the fourth principle. And that is we must practice love toward those who are lost. Absolute love and tolerance for people who are in darkness while standing for the truth. Here we are, 36 years old. 
I don't know any better time to recommit to our founding principles at St. Andrews than on, on our anniversary Sunday. <laughs> principles of unwavering commitment to the Word of God and His truth revealed. An unwavering holding to the gospel, His grace and love demonstrated. We must live that out in the middle of a lost and dying world. But we should always do that with such love that people who are in darkness will be stunned by it and then attracted to the light. The only way we can do that is as we are filled with the Holy Spirit and the love of Christ exudes from his people wherever we go. And every time we make any kind of a stand, it should be so couched in love that it cannot be ignored. Let's bow together. Lord, Lord, that's rare in our world, and it's rare even among Christians. Will you help us to be rare that way? We cannot do it without you. And so we would ask that, that we would have that manna, that bread of life, and that we would be confident not in ourselves, but in our identity, which is in Christ, and we would stand on your word and on the gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.